you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So glad you're here this morning, worshiping Jesus with us. We're always uh, grateful for anyone who comes, and always a little surprised that anyone does. So glad you are here to uh, uh, continue our walk through the book of 1 Corinthians and, and make much of Jesus this morning. We're, uh, verse 18, or rather verse 14 of chapter 4 is where we'll begin reading. 1 Corinthians, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with one such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Father, we humbly submit to your word and ask that your Holy Spirit would accomplish your purposes, the purposes that you desire in our midst this morning, whatever that is. And that we internally and inside of ourselves wouldn't play games, but would just lay ourselves bare before the Lord. I thank you that you are sufficient for this. We confess that we are not, and we absolutely need you this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been in church my entire life. Most of you know this. My dad has been and is a pastor. I was in church uh, for the nine months I was in my mother's womb, so I get bonus points there. And um, 
I was married before I ever uh, understood the concept of church discipline. That someone's sins in a local church could be so abhorrent that they would be dealt with in such a public manner. Now, it may have been taught, uh, may have been explained growing up in the church, but I didn't remember it. And as I would later find out when I became a pastor, um, it's something that has been completely uh, done away with, abandoned in most local churches uh, today in, in America. Uh, it's just not a concept that's readily taught, readily experienced or practiced. Uh, my perception of how sin was addressed in the typical Southern Bible Belt church growing up was everyone still sins, of course, we're not perfect, but it's up to the individual to deal with their own sins. None of us are perfect enough to address the sins in someone else's life. And certainly they aren't to be addressed publicly. That idea, along with the fact that the life of the church mainly happened within the walls of the church building on Sundays and Wednesdays, so that how well did you really know anyone? Because you're just coming up here for a little while and you don't really have time to get into each other's life. So you not only didn't know the sin someone would struggle with unless they gave the testimony in church, but you were shocked when all of a sudden someone's marriage ended. We didn't see that coming. We had no idea. Or someone confessed an addiction to some substance. Or someone had been cheating on a spouse. So how do we do a better job as a church plant, a new church, dealing with our sins as a local church? How do we not fall into the same trap? How do we not start playing the same games? Thankfully, we have the Word of God to instruct us better than our experiences. And what we see in this passage today is that ongoing sin has no place in the life of a local church, but must be addressed through mourning, through cleansing, through replacing that sin with sincerity and truth, so that the world can experience and see the distinctiveness, what makes us the church. We are not to be like every other organization. We are distinct. We are set apart. We are unique. Because we alone embody the presence of Christ. And so what does that look like for us practically? What's interesting uh, about moving into chapter 5 of this letter is Paul spent the first four chapters dealing with the the, the most important, the initial issue he's dealing with in this local church, is, as well as probably the overarching problem this local church had, and that was unity. And he's been just hammering with the gospel. The church was divided into factions uh, where people were giving their allegiance to one of three or four leaders, and they were they're allowing their preferences for these leaders. They were allowing maybe secondary uh, doctrinal issues to be primary. And so they were divided, very, very divided as a church. And Paul's been just for four chapters, don't be divided, be one. You have a bond in Christ that is so strong and so eternal. You should be one. Except for this guy. This guy's got to go. Don't be united with him. And you see Paul beginning to make this transition here in chapter, at the end of chapter 4. And what we find is unity is an important value of a local church, but not the preeminent value. There are things more valuable than unity, like truth and the core essential doctrines of who we are as a body of Christ. We spent time on that Friday night in Secret Church looking at the true gospel and counterfeit gospels, or false gospels, or cults like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, and so forth. If I or another pastor, leader, or member, or attender attempts to preach another gospel or dilute the gospel, you won't uh, hear us say, well, we just all need to get along. We don't want to offend anybody. You will hear us say, with grace, with love, but boldly repent or leave. There's no place for that. 
Doctrinal truth is essential doctrines more important than unity. We also see in this passage the purity of the local church is also to be valued above unity. And Paul's building the case for that as he's coming through the end of chapter 4. He's written hard words to them about their unity as their spiritual father, not to shame them, he says, but to admonish them. He sent his son in the faith, Timothy, to visit them in person, apply these truths. He's been a father to them. Imitate me, very fatherly, very pastoral, very gracious. And then in verse 18, the tone shifts. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? So I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness. Paul's not being passive aggressive. Paul is not subtweeting. He is drawing a line in the sand. Which is what you have to do with prideful people. Hit them in the teeth. Don't beat around the bush. You think I'm not coming, he says. I'm coming. Don't think you're avoiding this confrontation. And it's not going to be a debate of words. We're getting in the octagon. We're going to hash this out. But notice, he's still humble. If the Lord wills. I'm not sovereign, Paul says. The Lord is sovereign. And then he asks them, how do you want this visit to go? Do you want me to bring a rod or come with a gentle spirit? There's going to be a confrontation. You can't get away from that. But depending on how you respond to what I'm about to tell you in chapters 5 and 6, dealing with these three sins, a sexually uh, sinful brother, lawsuits among believers, they're suing each other, And they're continuing to engage with temple prostitutes in sexual sin. Just another day in the life of a pastor. Right? How you respond to my instruction in these three areas will determine if I'm coming with a rod or if I'm coming in a spirit of gentleness. What we see in these two chapters, ongoing sin has no place in the life of a local church. It has to be addressed. Now, what makes it difficult is which sins? Like how much sin? At what point do you address sin in the, life of, in the life of someone in this manner, this publicly? Just saying ongoing sin in the life of a local church needs to be addressed, well, that, that could be every one of us this morning, right? Every one of us has something we're struggling with, something we're wrestling with. There's always sin present in the life of a local church. Well, why is that? Well, because we are born with a sin nature. Every single human being on the face of the earth. We're born with a sin nature that makes our natural state bent away from God. Paul describes it like this in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is not work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. We all, Paul says, me too, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like everybody else. The rest of mankind. It takes zero effort as a parent to teach a child to be selfish. None. It takes considerable effort to teach them to be selfless. Just that one concept. Selfish, selfless. Drives you crazy as a parent. And you use lots of outward motivations. Negative consequences, negative reinforcement, positive consequences, positive reinforcement. Just the approval of the parent. Maybe they get something. Or the fear of punishment. Or the fear of the parent's disapproval. And the hope you have as a parent is that your children will grow up and get to a point where they're no longer motivated outwardly but inwardly. Because their heart has been transformed by the gospel. Because now they love Jesus. Now they love you. Now they love their brother or sister. 
That's the desire of every parent. And that's what is described later in Paul, chapter, by Paul in Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is salvation. This is regeneration. This is being born again, born from above, being made alive together with Christ. So what happens at that instant you're made alive in Christ, from then on you have two natures. The new nature that is alive in Christ and the old sinful nature that you were born with. This is unique to followers of Jesus. We saw this back in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, the difference between the natural man and the spiritual man. You see it clearly in passages like Galatians 5, 16-17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Spirit is the new man, flesh is the old man. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Like in the old Looney Tunes cartoons, it was an angel on one shoulder, a devil on the other shoulder. Now, that's not accurate, thankfully. The war happens on the inside of us, between the natural flesh we were born with and the new spirit, the new man that's alive in, inside of us, the life of Christ inside of us. Through Christ, we are made alive to Christ. We are saved from the penalty of sin so that we can fully say there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you will never be condemned by the Father in heaven who made you, ever. There's no condemnation. He will never condemn you. We're saved from the penalty of sin. We're also saved from the power of sin so that in Christ, Christ in us, we no longer have to sin. It's not our nature to sin unwillingly or willingly. Now we have the ability to choose because of the new nature that's inside of us. We'll see that in 1 Corinthians 10. There's no temptation that is so great that we have to give in to it. We can actually say no to sin. So we're saved from the penalty of sin, we're saved from the power of sin, and we're saved from one day the presence of sin. And, and on that glorious day, we'll, we'll no longer be able to sin because our old fleshy nature will be done away with because we'll no longer be living in this realm of the world that's controlled by Satan and his minions. Temptation won't, won't no longer exist. And we long for that day to come. But until that day, we're in this struggle. The difference for the genuine believer is not the presence and ability to sin, but it's how we respond to our sin. We don't justify our sins. We don't excuse our sins. We own them. We admit them. We confess them. And we hate them. I don't want to be that person. We're not making room in our life to hide and enjoy our sins, delight in our sins. But by God's grace, we're bringing them into the open so they can be dealt with in the light not hiding in darkness. And through the Word of God, through the Spirit of God, through the body of Christ helping us, we put sin to death. We kill it. We starve the old man by saying no to sin. We feed the new man by saying yes to whatever is holy and righteous and good. It's like this, the old story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll, the, the scientist, who noticed these sinful impulses inside of him. And he thought if he created a potion that created this character called Mr. Hyde, who went out and acted on these impulses, he would have a, a place to do that and then be transformed back to Dr. Jekyll and be a normal citizen contributing to society. But what happened? Mr. Hyde eventually destroyed Dr. Jekyll. The monster took over. 
That's what happens when we, we give in to sin. We allow sin to have freedom. We delight in sin. We give it place in our life. It's like, it's like playing around by starting fires in your living room. Like that's, that's not going to go well. That's like not a fun little game. It's like uh, playing with poisonous snakes or, or you know, dripping a little bit of acid on the skin. It's just a little bit. It's not that bad. Eventually, it's going to destroy you. Eventually, it's going to kill you. You are going to damage yourself. It's the same with us. We overcome sin not by occasionally indulging in sin, but by starving it. And the genuine believer wants that life, desires that, pursues that. And even if they don't for a season, they will always come back because Christ is in them. And they are in Christ. And He will not abandon them to sin. He will pursue them and bring them back. What marks us as followers of Jesus is not sinless perfection, but that we are quick to admit we are sinners and we will even tell you exactly what we struggle with and we are quick to confess and our hope is in Christ not to be destroyed by sin or be identified by our sins, but by Him who has saved us. And this is how we keep from getting to the point that this guy got to in chapter 5. Committing a sin so public, so blatantly sinful, it had to be addressed by Paul in a letter to be read by churches for thousands of years. This man had a relationship with his father's wife, not his mom. There's a word for that Paul could have used. But it was still incest, even though it was his stepmom. You may say, why, why would you do that? You know, that's disgusting. Well, it could have been that there was just physical attraction. It was often common for a man to remarry a wife who was much younger than him, and the, the stepmom could have been the same age as this guy. And so there was just a natural physical attraction they gave into. Could have been financial reasons. For instance, if they wanted to secure the inheritance of the father to keep the stepmom from marrying somebody else and taking that inheritance with her. And so, like uh, happens today, um, people find a financial benefit to living together and not being married. So it was in Roman, Greco-Roman world. There's a financial benefit to being in a relationship that was obviously sinful. Whatever the case, it was a sin so vile, Paul said, even the non-Christians don't do this. Now, Paul refers to him. He doesn't refer to the woman. So it's believed that she was not a member of the church, which makes sense later on in chapter 5 when he deals with sins in the church versus how we deal with sins outside the church. So this man was a church member committing a sin that the Greco-Roman culture would not give into. They would tolerate forms of adultery, prostitution, fornication, but not incest. They didn't go that far. And so Paul addresses it very simply, very directly, in three ways that help us. First, he rebukes the church for their arrogance and the fact that they were not mourning over this ongoing presence of blatant sin. In chapter 5, verse 2, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Their pride and arrogance had led the church to be divided into these factions, and now it had led the church to be calloused and insensitive about the very public sin of one of its members. Some believe it may have been a prominent member, which explained their reluctance to confront him. They loved the prominent person. They loved the person with prestige. If we tell this guy to leave, it makes us look worse as a church. So we just kind of ignore that it was going on. They valued that. We don't want to run him out. Lessons our status. And so we're, they're not boasting in the sins of the man. Paul's not saying that about them. But they were boasting despite the sins of this man. Boasting about how great they are despite they had this really bad problem in their midst that they were okay with. Notice in verse 9, 
Paul had already written to them in the first letter to this church, which we don't have, to, to, to deal with this. He says in, in, in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. He's already dealt with this in one letter. The report comes from, from Chloe and her people, though they hadn't dealt with it. it. It seems as though they dismissed Paul's teaching either arrogantly or just ignorantly that on some technicality. Well, Paul, Paul's so silly not to associate with sexually immoral people. We'd have to go to another world, have to move to another city. Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. And Paul responds in this letter with even more direct language to deal with this. If we follow that advice, they said, we would have to move to a different place, completely arrogant and prideful about their point of view about how to deal with this issue of sin in the church. There was a complete failure because of their pride to see themselves as Paul described them just a few verses earlier in 1 Corinthians 3. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Paul knows when he's writing that in chapter 3, he's laying the foundation for what we're dealing with in chapter 5. This reverence and understanding of who we are as the temple of a holy God. Not to allow sin to destroy the temple and deal with it. Their pride led them to individualize themselves and not see themselves collectively. Kind of the, well, I'm okay. Well, they have problems, but that's their problems. I'm fine. So because I'm fine, we're fine. Instead of mourning over the sin that was infecting the temple of God, as Ezra did in the Old Testament, as Nehemiah did in the Old Testament, as Daniel did in the Old Testament, mourning over the sins of the nation, being brokenhearted over the sins of God's people, not just their own sins. That takes humility. Remaining humble allows us not to elevate ourselves above others, but understand, but for the grace of God go I. It's it's never like Survivor, where you made it, too bad for that sucker, he didn't make it. I'm okay. It's, It's when one brother is stumbling and falling, you feel the weight of that. Because he's part of this living organism called the church. When another brother is rejoicing, you feel the weight of that. Because you're sharing in that blessing and you're sharing in that joy with them. Humility helps us to see that we're all together in this. Prideful and arrogance refuses to see that. If I'm okay, we're okay. The reality is we still sin. And it takes humility to keep our minds and hearts sensitive to that and not be callous or hard against that. So what sin should trigger this kind of response from the body of Christ today? Like the chances of us dealing with incest in the local church is probably slim to none. It could happen, but probably not going to happen. Paul lists some other sins that if they existed among themselves, who, among those who call themselves Christians, they should be addressed and mourned over if they are publicly being expressed and enjoyed. In verse 11, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if they are guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. See, our responsibility is not to hold the world accountable. That's God's job. It's to hold each other accountable for these sins, sexual immorality, the most general term of sexual immorality that Paul could use, any kind of sexual sin. 
greed. Like we may think in our culture, more like materialistic or consumeristic passions and loves and desires. Greed, like, like sometimes we immediately think, well, I'm, I'm not rich, so I'm not greedy. But greed is not reserved for the wealthy. It can be anyone whose heart is consumed with stuff more than God. Who's living more for the treasure of this world than the treasure of heaven. And that can be your heart if you have a lot or if you have a little. Idolater. Not that we carve figurines and name our little gods, but anyone or anything that we love and pursue more than Jesus. Anyone or anything that grabs our heart more than Jesus. It could be something overtly sinful or it could be something good that's become sinful because we've taken something good and turned it to a god. Interestingly, these three sins, sex, greed, idols, were the three primary sins the Corinthian church struggled with and the sins that Paul's addressing here in chapters 5 and 6. The reviler, the verbal abuser, the one who does violence with their tongue, the critical spirit, the rebellious spirit against authority and against others. They're the ones who are stirring the pot with their critical eye and condemning words, the ones who make you cringe when you're around them. The drunkard. While alcohol consumption is not always sinful, depending on your motivations and your context, it can be okay to have a drink, just as we enjoy food and other liquid substances, but it's not always okay. If your motivations are self-medication, if your motivations are to flaunt your freedom in Christ, then it can be sinful for you to consume alcohol. It's not always okay, but it's not always sinful. You have to check your heart. You have to check who you're around. But it's always sinful to be drunk. It's always sinful to allow any substance that you ingest to control you more than the Holy Spirit. So it can be caffeine, sugar, anything like that. We're not to be addicted to anything. If you don't feel a sense of freedom from conviction to enjoy a drink in the right context with the right motivations, we would lovingly and strongly encourage you to abstain. Like, it's not that important. There's plenty of things you can drink. It's not necessary today. You can go the rest of your life and not have a drink and you're fine. It's not a top tier issue that should cause disunity within the body of Christ. But even among those who do feel the liberty, there needs to be seasons and occasions where you lay that down because you love somebody. And we'll get to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Or you may need to lay it down to make sure it's not controlling you. That you're enjoying it in true freedom. The swindler, the robber, the one who takes by force, the exploiter, the one who takes advantage of others. Like for those who love our free economy and capitalism, are, are those biblical virtues? Like when did those become part of the fruit of the Spirit? Making as much profit as possible. Are we supposed to make as much money po- as possible from as many people as possible? Martin Luther rebuked a man in his church for selling his house for an exorbitant price, far beyond what it was worth, just because he could. Our lust for profit, especially taking advantage of others, could reflect a sinful heart and greed and an idolatry of money that is out of step with the gospel. Be successful in our careers? Yes. Work to the glory of God? Yes. Make a profit? Yes. But in a way that shows God as our king and not money and achievement as our king. You could include the sins of chapter 6, believers suing each other. Uh, continue to engage in, with prostitutes, temple prostitutes, which is part of the pagan worship. So, so basically, what sins are, are dealt with in this way, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it would be whatever sin would threaten the purity of the church. It would have to be something that was publicly known, 
So it was clear it was being engaged in and delighted in and enjoyed, not, not repented of, confessed. It would have to be a sin that wasn't someone, they, they weren't struggling to fight it, but they were unashamedly delighting in. A sin that would cause others outside of the church to stop and say, y'all are okay with that? That's okay in your church? The church in Memphis a few months ago, applauding their pastor who got on stage and publicly confessed a sexual abuse sin that he committed against a girl in his youth group about 10, 15 years prior. Applauding him probably to give them some benefit of the doubt because he was brave enough to confess it. But then he remained in his position until the church realized the pushback from society was like, this is not good. And they put him on leave of absence and now he's been removed. It's impossible to make a concrete list of what sin would or should bring about this kind of reaction in the church. What we have to do is trust that as we're walking with Jesus, as we're submitting to His Word, as we are walking in the Spirit, as we are dealing with our sins while they are small, if and when those sins are known and publicly enjoyed, we would respond with appropriate humility and brokenness. We would mourn. We see a brother and sister in Christ giving in to sin, not fighting against sin. We mourn over that because we are connected with them through Christ. That bond is eternal. Just like a part of your body that's hurting, you wouldn't just ignore it. That may be to go away. You would deal with it. You would help bring health in that part of your body. You'd have surgery if you had to have surgery. How were they to deal with the sin? Not by mourning over it, not only by mourning over it, but also by cleansing it out, purging it from their midst. That's the second way we deal with sin. Verse uh, 2. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. With the full weight of his authority as an apostle, even though he's not there, it's as if he is there, he says. In the name and power of the Lord Jesus, who if there physically in his incarnational ministry would have dealt with it the same way, the verdict has been rendered. There is no trial. It has been decided. Remove the man. He's out. Hand this man over to Satan so his flesh can be destroyed and hopefully his spirit saved. This is excommunication, if you've ever heard that term in relation to a local church, which is cutting someone off, X, from the communion table, the continued shared celebration of the sacrifice of Christ for the sins of His people, the life of the local church, cutting them off from that. Why? Because this person is not demonstrating evidence that they are trusting in the Christ, the Christ atoning sacrifice, which is represented in the meal of the bread and the fruit of the vine, for their sins. This is Matthew 18, 15-17, carried all the way to the end. If a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, you no longer relate to this person as a believer, but as an unbeliever. When we, we stand and we, and we share in this meal, the bread and the fruit of the vine, we invite baptized, repentant believers, people who are part of the body of Christ, people who have publicly professed Christ, to come and share in this meal with us, 
who are fighting against sin. We don't invite just anyone and everyone. This is a meal, just like Passover, reserved for certain people. So this meal communion is reserved for certain people. And the person who's indulging or delighting or enjoying sin is cut off from that. Now, you could still be in relationship with them, but as one who is not a believer, no longer a brother and sister in Christ. This seems incredibly harsh, especially if, if probably everyone in this room, you've, you've grown up in churches where this has hardly been practiced. Like, I can't imagine a church actually doing this. But notice the purpose of the discipline is to save the person. Not punish the person. Delivering them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh is not handing them over for torture and death. Okay, that's not what that language is referring to. But it's turning them, to, turning them loose to chase what they truly desire to chase, sin. And the supposed freedom that they think sin brings in the realm that Satan controls, the sinful realm of this world. You see, when Paul speaks of the spirit and flesh, as he does in Galatians 5, as he does in Romans 8, It's not a reference to the physical body and the spiritual body, but it's a reference to the fleshy sin nature we're born with and the new spiritual nature that we get in Christ. The purpose of this seemingly extreme action is remedial, restorative, for the salvation of the man's soul. He wants to chase sin, turn him loose and let him chase it. With the hope that his being cut off from the covenant community will reveal to him the seriousness of his sin, the dangerous place he is in, in direct rebellion against a holy God, and by God's grace, he will repent and return and be saved. That's the desire for church discipline. In the conversations where we've had to walk this out with people, it's always like this. Our fear is for your soul. We're willing to risk this relationship we have with you and the tension that this brings because we want you to be in heaven. We want you to make it to the eternal state. We want you to truly be a child of God that enjoys God and His people forever and ever. And right now you are demonstrating a lifestyle of embracing and loving sin that is countercultural to what the, the Scriptures say a Christian should live. And it may be evidence that you're not truly born again. So let us lovingly walk you through this so that you would repent and believe in Jesus and come alive in Him if you're not already alive. Or if you are alive in Him, as Paul seems to be implying in this chapter, you would return and hate sin and fight against sin. To allow Him to continue unrebuked in His sin is not just infringing on the identity of the church as God's holy temple, but it's damaging to the man himself giving him tacit approval of his sinful choices and acting as though sin is okay and not destructive. It's letting your kids run to play in the street and you do nothing because you don't want to hurt their feelings. They're laughing and giggling all the way out there, having so much fun. What's interesting about this whole section of the letter, Paul is talking to the man, not, not, not talking to the man, he's talking about the man, but he's talking to the church. He's holding the church accountable for how they are dealing with sin in their midst. Why don't you love this brother enough to demonstrate tough love? Why are you letting him destroy himself and the reputation of the church and the culture? Paul gives this analogy of a lump of bread and leaven to further explain in in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul, growing up Jew, rising to the status of a Pharisee, uh, is 
through and through influenced by the Old Testament, and all of his letters are flavored by the Old Testament in ways that, for sake of time, we just can't draw everything out. But here's another example, drawing upon the Old Testament Feast of Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Here, leaven represents sin. You can't celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread with leaven or sin present. So clean it out and then celebrate. Celebrate Christ, our Passover lamb, who has been sacrificed. Why has Christ been sacrificed? For our sins. So if sin is willingly, knowingly, and being delighted in but not dealt with, how can you celebrate Christ? What is there to celebrate? Why would you celebrate Christ, the sacrificial Passover lamb, if sin is being indulged in? He came and died for our sins, but you are celebrating those sins. You're arrogant about your sins. Christ in His death is not being celebrated, but being trampled upon and made to be meaningless. Why did He even die if we're celebrating sin like that? Hebrews 10 gives us further insight. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy or the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For if we go on sinning deliberately, if we embrace and delight in our sin, if we shrug our shoulders at our sins, if we turn a blind eye to those in our midst who call themselves Christians and live like this. Ongoing sin has no place in the local church. Must be addressed. We mourn over our sins. We mourn over those around us who would embrace sin and celebrate their sin and not celebrate Christ. Christ paid for our sins through His willing, loving sacrifice. Why would we make that null, null and void, trampling Him underfoot to enjoy and celebrate our sins more than Him? God, help us to heed this. Brothers and sisters, heed this. Don't play with sin. However the Spirit is speaking to you this morning, hear the Spirit of God. See the sacrifice of Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. Yeah, our sins are awful and they are heavy. Christ is greater. Amen. This morning, celebrate Christ afresh and anew like never before. Because once again, you're turning from enjoying sin to enjoying Christ. Thirdly, we're to mourn over our sin. We're to clean our sins out. Thirdly, we replace our sins. Clean our sins out, even if that means expelling someone from the community of the local church. And we replace our sins with sincerity and truth. Verse 8 tells us, We are called to be a people who hold to the truth of the gospel in a genuine, sincere way so that our lives back up what we profess. Sincerity alone is not enough. You can be sincerely wrong. It has to be accompanied by truth, the one true gospel. 
But the one true gospel must be held with sincerity. It can't just be in your head only, lips only. It has to be who you really are, genuineness, authenticity. So that in every area of our life, in every single relationship, there is the presence of the true gospel flavoring everything that we do. This is gospel saturation. It influences every part of your life. Sincerity carries the idea of walking in the light. Shine the light into every part of our life and there is nothing hidden, nothing secret. Like we're all uh, wigging out in our culture about all this, this data mining that social media is doing and sharing with who knows, who knows what. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, there's nothing to be hidden in our lives. Go ahead. It's pretty boring. But you can have it. You can see it. You can share it with whoever you want. It's not going to make me buy anything. But send the advertisements. Just don't send the emails. Get sick of those. Now, again, this is not some version of sinless perfection. But even if our sins are exposed, we are the first to own them and repent of them because we're already fighting against them. We're in the battle against them. We're not trying to hide them. And the purpose for all of this, so that our distinctiveness would be seen and experienced by the world. So that the world, those not in the covenant community of faith called the church, but those in the world could see and experience what makes us distinct as Christ followers. That's, that's the aim. In verse 10, notice Paul's saying he's not taking them out of the world. He's left us in the world as this distinct people. Christ fully intends for us to remain in the world in and among sinful people. But we live among sinful people as sinful people who have found freedom and forgiveness in Christ. That's what makes us distinct. We're set free from the power of sin, the penalty of sin, the presence of sin. Not that we put ourselves on the pedestal. Hey, sinful people, look how amazing we are. But that we put Christ on the pedestal. Look how amazing Christ is. He would save even me. And He would help even me continually, even though daily I don't love Him as much as He deserves to be loved. Daily I don't worship Him as much as He deserves to be worshipped. Daily He doesn't captivate my heart as much as He should. Should. Sometimes the NBA playoffs captivate my heart more than Jesus. And it's ridiculous. But it's, it's who we are. This was Christ. Completely sinless, but called the friend of sinners. What needs to happen in our life so that we could be as diligent to wage war with our sins and yet so be in the lives of the lost that we are called the friend of sinners? In one sense, he makes us this kind of people already who are first to admit our sins and, and one of the most diligent and the ones who are most diligent in fighting to see the sin killed in us. This is who we already are. He hinted at this in, 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 or declared this in verse 7, where he says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. That one little phrase is amazing. Considering who he's talking to. And it's amazing for us considering who's in this room. Right? Paul says you really are unleavened. You really are these people for whom Christ died, paid the penalty of your sins, and has set you free from sin. You are the unleavened bread of God. Sin has no place in you. This is your identity. Now go be that people. Identity precedes obedience. The reason we can celebrate Christ, our Passover lamb, is because we are walking in repentance and living and swimming in His victory over sin. This is who we are. 
Not because of our performance, but of the performance of Christ. And if you're here today and you're outside of Christ, and you haven't experienced this new life in Christ, today can be the day of your salvation. Today, this can be your reality. By turning from your sin and trusting in Christ, the one who paid for your sins, both now and forever. The beautiful conclusion to this story, it seems as though this hard, loving act of discipline accomplished its intended purpose. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Many people, most people, believe this is referring to the man in 1 Corinthians 5. That he repented and was ready to return. And Paul had to, had to, again, spur them along. Bring him back in, y'all. Don't let him be crushed by his shame. Love him well. Forgive him. Pour out your, the, the mercy and the grace of Christ over him. The world doesn't need a church who's great at finger-pointing at the sins of the world. The world needs a church who's dealing with their own sins. With sincerity and truth and mourning and cleansing and a rock-solid faith and hope in Christ. That is a distinct community. No, no other communities like this. None. But we are also so much in the world that they don't know and see this from the distance or because we tweet about it or put it on our website. They see it in our lives. One author put it like this. The world is waiting to see such a church. A church which takes sin seriously, which enjoys forgiveness fully, which in its time of gathering together combines joyful celebration with an awesome sense of God's immediacy and authority, but are also willing to come into costly, compassionate contact with the men and women of the world. This is why we gather. This is why we sing This is why we eat this meal together. This is why we give. This is why we're sent to be this people. Father, I thank you for what you have made possible through your son, Jesus. And I pray for for all of us that the reality of Jesus would be our reality. This wouldn't be ideas we're talking about that are true for other people, but they would be true of everyone in this room. Because we are turning from sin and trusting in Jesus. Father, I pray you would make that happen. To greater and greater effects and greater and deeper degrees. That we would truly be distinct as a church in our city. Because we hate our sins. But because we are trusting and loving in Jesus. Let us sing. Sing today of this. Let us celebrate this today through this meal. Let us give. Let us be sent to share this with those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.